Today's episode is brought to you by Nin. Nin is a cutting-edge synthetic nicotine pouch brand that's setting the new standard for nicotine pouches in the U.S. with its lineup of zero tobacco nicotine pouches backed by a management team with a proven track record of success in the nicotine and tobacco industry. Nin aims to revolutionize the nicotine category for businesses and consumers by offering an industry-leading product that's backed by innovative technology, high-impact branding, and category expertise. They are maintaining a new era of nicotine products that take people's lives to the next level beyond the tobacco leaf. The inevitable conclusion is the complete removal of all harmful components of tobacco plants by redefining the customer experience. At NIM, their mission is to help spearhead the evolution away from tobacco and towards smarter nicotine alternatives. NIM comes in a few great flavors like cinnamon, wintergreen, spearmint, coolmint, and citrus chill. All flavors are available in three or six milligram strengths, large 34 millimeter pouches, 20 pouches per can, five cans per sleeve, 18 sleeves per case, so 90 cans total. They are the new era of nicotine, the evolution of nicotine. They are nicotine innovated. Think about it, life beyond the leaf, pure nicotine satisfaction. With Nin, you can live life beyond the leaf. There are better ways to enjoy nicotine without tobacco. Zero tobacco, pure nicotine satisfaction. The real tobacco-free nicotine pouches are with Nin. So go to ninpouches.com. That is N-I-I-N pouches.com. Remember, Nin, live life beyond the leaf. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. To the two-man power trip of wrestling, I'm your host, J.P. John Paz. With me today is an ECW original. He is, of course, the godfather himself, Mr. Damian Kane. Damian, welcome to the two-man power trip. How are you uh, doing? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, original. The original godfather of professional wrestling. Yeah. Uh, I was given that name, by the way. I, I earned it. I wasn't just a guy that woke up one day and decided to call himself that. Because... Uh, <laughs> That's a mighty high honor. Who gave it? Who gave it the name? 
Gary, Gary Michael Capetto, uh, legendary ring announcer. Uh, he used to do uh, a lot of our ring announcing for the NWF stuff that I did back in the day in the 80s. And uh, he <laughs> he was going through his notes preparing for TV that night. And we had just done a bunch of promos and uh, interviews uh, prior to letting the fans in in the empty arena, you know, uh, building up for other towns. We were working for stuff. And I happened to manage Abdul the Butcher, DC Metal Drink. At the time, I think also uh, Sheik El Shad. Uh, he was an opponent for Sergeant Slaughter in many of the towns. So I did talking for him because none of them, none of them talked, did their own talking. So as a manager, which I was a wrestler first, but since I did, uh, I had such strong mic skills, they uh, utilized my skills as a manager more so than wrestling. So I had to do all of the promos for Abby, DC Drake, Sheik El Shad, and uh, anything that I was doing with myself, which at the time we had a uh, thing going with Brody and Jules Strongbow. So, you know, if you add all up, the promos we did that day, there might have been about 20 of them and about uh, one or two might have been for Slaughter. Uh, one or two might have been for Superstar Billy Graham. One or two might have been for this guy or that guy, maybe Wendy Richter or somebody. And uh, because of all the guys I had to do the talking for, I did a couple of for this guy. And he'd get back, step out, another guy stepped in, do a couple for that guy. He'd step out, I'd step in, you know, or he'd step in and I'd do the promos for him. And of course, Paul, Paul Heyman was the commentator. That was the first job we gave him with us in the NWF. So he'd be standing there holding the microphone and I'd do my thing over and over and over again. Well, Gary happened to be hanging out. He was there early getting his stuff together. He's a very professional. And when he came in the back, taking everybody's information to make sure his notes were accurate for TV, he uh, he asked me. He said, uh, "Hey, Danny, He said, "What are we What are we announcing you as now?" Because he knew I wrestled and managed it. <clears throat> I said, "Actually, uh, just just Damian Kane, you know." And he said, "Man, <laughs> you sure?" <laughs> he said, "Man, they ought to call you like a godfather of wrestling, man." <laughs> Like James Brown, you know, he's like the hardest working man in show business. They call him Godfather Soul Hill. But you Godfather Wrestling. I've seen all them promos, man. One take wonders. Boom, 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 boom. He just knocked him out of the park. I ain't never seen nobody work that hard. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I took it as a compliment. I kind of giggled about it. And actually, one of the promoters, Rob Russell, with the National Wrestling Federation office, he was sitting nearby and heard him make that comment about the. Uh, Godfather of Wrestling, he said, you know, I like that. He said, let's uh, go ahead and throw that in there. Go ahead and use that tonight for the tapings, and uh, you know, we'll see how that goes over. Well, it went over pretty well. Uh, you know, it worked, so to speak. And since we established it with, you know, uh, three weeks worth of TV with a couple of different guys that I was managing on each time, you know, people got to hear that for, you know, a few weeks by the time they'd actually seen anything from the house shows we were promoting. 
So it, it kind of caught on real quick, and uh, I was honored that he thought of me that way. And Rob, you know, also said, he said, no, you earn, you earn it, you know. He said, that's a good, that's a good moniker for you. Yeah. He said, let's go with that. And that's what stuck ever since until, of course, the, in the 90s. Ended up working back in with Paul when he was working with Todd on the ECW stuff. And because it was extreme, we went ahead with the idea of going with the name of uh, Godfather of Extreme instead of Godfather of Professional Wrestling. So, you know, it was a new decade, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So anyway, we did that, and then uh, that stuck. You know, I was with doing their stuff, I guess, a year and a half or so. I mean, we got a lot to talk about, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to go on and on. You just go ahead and ask questions, and I'll be happy to give you a good response. Nice. Love it. So with – you were mentioned NWF and Paul Heyman. How did Heyman get in? Like, did you bring him into the business? He was actually a photographer uh, when I got to know him. Uh, he had started, you know, following stuff that we were doing. And as a photographer, he freelanced a lot of his pictures out, the magazines and so forth. So he was getting stuff in print and, uh, you know, he would take a lot of shots for, for our stuff and, you know, kind of worked his way in socially, you know, and got to know us and myself and Drake, you know, we were a big part of all the, especially on TV productions, we were a big part of kind of, we were kind of like the duct tape that was holding things together on the production side, you know, they had a production company, but they also had us as consultants or whatever you want to refer to it as, we'd sit in the studio uh, and we'd uh, give our input on, I guess you would call it part of the creative end of putting the shows together. And, uh, you know, like I said, Paul was doing a lot of uh, photography work for us, getting some of that stuff in the magazine. So he got to know that uh, that me and Drake were pretty key guys in the group, you know, as far as the National Wrestling Federation went. So, you know, Drake went as the National Wrestling Federation heavyweight champion and the godfather of professional wrestling. Wow. You know, this is all great. (laughs) And, uh, you know, his photography work is excellent, uh, you know, and uh, we ended up giving him the responsibilities of handling our programs. So officially, uh, I think it's uh, wrestling news international or something like that is, uh, wrestling press international something like that he uses for a, for a main name for the publishing stuff so anyway he uh he ended up being the editor of our programs and uh he was doing a good job with that you know good photography work he did little storylines everything was going to come together and working pretty well for us uh national wrestling federation continued to grow and uh you know, back in the 80s, I mean, we were, not to toot our own horn, but we were we were pretty much the shit, you know. If it wasn't uh, NWA or WWF, it was the National Wrestling Federation. We had the National Wrestling Alliance, the World Wrestling Federation, and what we offered was a mix of talent, fresh from both, along with some local guys that were pretty decent at what they did, and we put a product together that addressed 
the desire of a lot of fans wanting to see people like, uh, you know, Sergeant Slaughter go against somebody else besides somebody in the WWF, you know. Uh, Abdul the Butcher, you know. Superstar Billy Graham, these guys, you know, coming back into the fray, we were the perfect, perfect place for somebody like Graham to be, uh, you know, in between groups, you know what I'm saying? So we became like that middle guy. And Heyman was a big fan of the business. He's a wrestling historian, you know. And he uh, he knew what we were doing and wanted to be more of a part of it. So besides the programs, he got to know me and Drake really well. I mean, we used to have nightly phone calls, you know. And when we do the tapings, we started looking at what more we could do with him to utilize, you know, some of that talent, which was obvious, you know, he knew the business inside and out, you know, he uh, was around it as a kid, just like I was, you know, they used to do their tapings for the original WWWF. Uh, McMahon senior was doing all the tapings in Hamburg and Allentown, Pennsylvania. That was half hour from where I lived. So I grew up, you know, at those live events where they'd shot everything for TV and then had the advantage of seeing how that played back on TV. And, you know, he had that same kind of experience up in New York and Madison Square Garden, the whole nine yards. So, you know, uh, our upbringing, even though there was a few years between us, he was, uh, you know, young and hungry. So he ended up, kept on pushing, kept on pushing. So we ended up doing a, a, uh, it was a nighttime wrestling entertainment product. It was called Arena Nightlife. Uh, very similar to what McMahon had done with uh, Tuesday Night Titans. It's like a talk show type setting. And actually, we had to utilize Paul as part of that and liked what he was doing behind the camera, well, you know, behind the uh, microphone. So we ended up uh, talking to the guys in the office because that was one position that we needed to get stable. We had some pretty decent, uh, you know, disc jockeys and so forth that were part of the group that, you know, did some commentating for us and, you know, but it wasn't the edge that we needed in that department. Well, Paul fit that bill pretty good. So we put him in a suit and a tie and put him out there at the commentator's table and it did really well for us. So that was working. And, of course, with the interviews and promos, he was in there holding the microphone, and all that was working. And he got to be a pretty big fan of mine. Uh, and I don't say that to boast or brag. i just being honest. He had a uh, a photo book that he had put out at the time. I think it was the Roving Camera Photo Book. Of course, I know the name of it. It's one of my collector's items. Roving Camera Photo Book of... Paul Heyman, and he came to me after several times. He, he asked me, we used to talk nightly. Like I said, he used to call me all the time. And he always, you know, man, why, I don't know why you're not working for the big guys. I don't know why you're not working for this. I don't, man, what's, man, I don't, you're, you're, I mean, geez, you know. <laughs> and I was like, very flattering, you know, but uh, that's not what I wanted. That's why I was doing what I was doing. I just preferred to have more creative control, so to speak or more control, period, over my destiny. And, you know, I think I have a lot, as far as that end of it goes, to offer. 
more so than just, you know, giving me something to say in front of a camera and, and following up by being in those towns in those days and doing what you want me to do and who you want me to be. And it's just, I never, I never could get that part of it after they started converting over to, uh, you know, addressing the marketing to the kids with Hulkamania and all the cartoonish type characters, you know. I just didn't want to do that. <laughs> I just didn't. I worked, you know, hard in the business, trained by the original Killer Kowalski in New England. You know, broke in, had a good time, actually, because at the time that I broke in, that original WWWF uh, pack of roster of talent was all at the twilight of their career, and uh, they didn't want any parts of this new idea. <laughs> So, you know, you had guys like Bruno and his son, David, Larry Zabisco, Dominic DiNucci, and a lot of guys from out in the western Pennsylvania, Ohio area. You know, they had a, a training camp out there where DiNucci had trained guys. I think Mick Foley came through him. I think uh, Troy. Uh, Shane Douglas. Uh, what's yeah Shane, Shane Douglas yeah went through him and uh, you know quite a few guys so he had a pack of guys out there uh, I don't think they did it quite at the same time but Kowalski had a pack of guys up where he was at and in between you had like some oldies that were part of the uh, promotion end of the office with McMahon who broke away also and you know he did promoting of the international. Wrestling Federation, the IWF is what I started with, with Kowalski. And uh, I was pretty fortunate to work with all those legendary guys. So I had a good a good start in the business. And I, you know, always was strong with the mic. So they ended up putting me, putting the mic in my face right off the bat when I did my first tape. And uh, that's always been my blessing. But what I was referring to was a book that Paul Heyman put out the roving camera photo book he went ahead and uh he autographed it to me uh made a comment on there he says uh i have it in a case but anyway it says uh something to the effect uh to damian kane the godfather of professional wrestling may this book be blessed by your greatness of godfather paul Heyman, october of 1996 i think it was or 1986 i'm sorry so, yeah, that was when he was commentating. And we ended up uh, finally coming up with the right idea to bring him up to a, a manager. Uh, there was a movie that was out at the time. Uh, Michael Keaton was the character in the movie. It was Johnny Dangerously. And uh, that character, you know, Paul, <laughs> when he had his suit on, would put his jacket on, you know, he would get him, got that hair, you know, he was just to worry about, and he kept it nice and, you know, well kept, and everything looked, he looked like that character, and at the time, cell phones were like a brick, you know, <laughs> they weren't what they are today, so it was like the perfect idea, uh, Paul E. Dangerously instead of Johnny Dangerously, and that's what we did, and, you know, we gave him that shot, and he actually managed myself and Drake. The uh, very first time he did anything as a manager for us was, uh, I think it was at the Reading Municipal Stadium. 
right about that same time. It would have been 86, 87 area. But anyway, we uh, we did that, and that was his first shot of the manager as Paulie Dangerously. We actually worked a tag match with the Fantastics, and he, you know, came in off the top rope with a chain that I used for Drake's collar and, uh, you know, did a gimmick finish. But, yeah, and, I mean, we go we go back to when he, when he very first wanted to get in the game as a photographer. When you break into ECW, is that because of him? Does he bring you in? No, actually, uh, that's a kind of a roundabout story, too. Uh, I used to work a lot with a, a guy by the name of Larry Winters. He wrestled as Larry Winters. He was a local Philadelphia guy. He started around the same time that I did. Uh, so when I started in business with Kowalski, he was getting booked on a lot of those cars that were around the Philadelphia area. And we'd end up working together a lot or, you know, got to know each other from working for the same group for a long time. And, uh, you know, we traveled up and down the roads together, went out to the shows out in West Virginia and stuff from the Philadelphia area, We'd drive out to Ohio, or whatever the case may be. I think Ron Shaw was working with us at the time. He was work. He would uh, be the designated driver a lot because he liked to drive his car. He liked to be in control. So. <laughs> but anyway, you know, we did uh, a bunch of stuff with Larry Winter. So I knew him really well. And he was working uh, with Todd and... Uh, uh, I guess he was he was actually tied in a little bit with Dennis Corluzzo at the time. And uh might have been even Joel Goodhart, too. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, he had been doing the stuff that he had Eddie Gilbert booking. And, you know, it was going good to a certain extent. They just felt like, I think it was, you know, Todd, the way the message came to me was, Larry had known that I had a place that I'd started up in, in Reading, Pennsylvania, the Body Slams Pro Wrestling uh, Arena and Training Center. And I hadn't paid any attention at all to what they were doing down there because I had worked for for them down there before. Uh, you know, when I started, uh, you know, I worked down in the Philly market quite a bit because it was so close to home for me. I lived in Reading. And... uh you know, that's how I got to know a lot of those Philadelphia boys, even before anything else that we did. So anyway, the uh, uh, the place that I had up in Reading, I was up there, you know, working with some guys. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Larry comes walking up the ramp. It was, in a big, it was like in a big warehouse set up. It was almost like a second floor deal. You walk up the ramp from outside and come in. And... Uh, <laughs> I go, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I hadn't seen him in a while. And he's like, Hanzo, what's up? <laughs> and so I said, like, hey, man, what's going on, brother? He says, so this is your place, huh? I said, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I built bleachers into it. You know, I mean, it was big enough to run shows. So it was a self-contained operation. Body slams for wrestling arena and training center with a gym that was open to the public. You know, we had a pretty good deal set up. And little did I know that they were, you know, preparing to make some changes down there in Philadelphia, uh, ECW, the Eastern Championship Wrestling. They were running that. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, your name came up when Todd was, you know, talking about making some changes in the in the booking end of the group. He thinks, you know, it's getting to be too much of the Eddie Gilbert show. So 
like the king of Philadelphia, doing little skits every all around town. And he said he wants to <laughs> take it a little different direction than that. And uh, your name somewhere came up. And he uh, know that I I knew you real well and asked me if I could get a hold of you. So I said, yeah, let me go see if I can track him down so I come up to talk to you. Uh, basically, see if he'd be interested in talking to Todd. And I was like, well, sure. See what he's got going on. See if I can help him anyway. Sure. He said, all right, man. He said, I told him, I'd, you know, give you his number. So I gave him a call. He said, yeah, Damien, uh, have you got any time to come down? I'd like to talk to you. You know, see if we can't work something out. I said, well, sure. Uh, so I went down on a day. He was in his uh, the store that he had there, uh, Jewish store, whatever it was. Uh, walked in and took me in the back, you know, we sat down and talked. I was like, okay. Uh, he said, yeah, I'm looking to, you know, change some things up. He said, and, uh, you know, talking with uh, uh, Paul, I know you had worked with, with Paul before. He said, and I think you guys, you know, get along good, you know. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking at a good, solid, you know, team to get this thing where I want it to be. And I just want to change directions on what we're doing. You know, it was, it was, it was just a basic you know, get to know each other's story when he was interested in having me be a part of it. And I was like, okay, well, uh, sure. I'd be interested in working with you. And, uh, and that's where we had left it. And I got a call from him wanting me to want to get me started coming down. So he invited me to come down to one of the shows. And, uh, of course I went down, it was after intermission. So I didn't know how close it was to the end of the show. I didn't want to go in and just walk in and disrupt anything because, you know, I was pretty well known in the area. So I just kind of waited outside the back door, basically, you know, on that side street. So I was just kind of hanging out and I had my, uh, my younger brother. Uh, he's actually my nephew, but we so much like my brother. We always called each other brothers. But anyway, he was with me and, uh, you know, we were just hanging out outside and waiting for the show to end. And then I was going to slide in talk to Todd when he had time. I didn't want to disrupt anything. So somebody had given word back to the back that I was outside and uh, they had somebody come out, one of the security guys come out and invite me to come back in. And, uh, you know, he was going to walk me back. I was sure, whatever. So we walk in, go back. Paul and, and, and uh, Eddie Gilbert are just getting ready to leave, carrying their bags out. And we cross paths, and he stops dead in his tracks. And even at the time, I was like, what is this all about? You know, he put on a show like he wouldn't believe. And I expected him to be cordial and everything. I hadn't talked to him in a while, but, you know, I would figure that he had a good memory. And uh, But he puts his bags down. He's like, oh, my God, Damien motherfucking Kane. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, and he puts big arms around him, big hugs. Eddie Gilbert's just kind of looking, because I had never met Eddie before. And, you know, other guys were, like, looking around, and he's like, you know who this guy is? Oh, my God, this is the kind of fun wrestling. Damien Kane, God, where you been, man? All this crap, right? And I'm like, well, you know, good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, good to see you. Glad you're doing well and everything. But, yeah, Todd wanted me to stop down and talk to him, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we were just headed out, man. Oh, man, call me, call me. <laughs> you know, that's Paul. Call me, call me. On the way out the door. 
So Todd was pretty busy yet, and I said, "Listen, man, why don't we uh, why don't we just you know talk about the details some other time? You got a lot going on. It's a show night, you know. I understand all that." He's like, "Okay, yeah. I'm sorry, man. I, I thought we'd have more time to get together during the show or something, but yeah, that's fine. Uh, you know." So that week, he got in touch with me, and we talked some more. And, and he said, yeah, he said, I want you to come down, be involved. He said, I want Paul, you know, you two guys worked together before, just like you said before and Paul. And he's like, you know, come on down, and uh, we'll see what we can get going on, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's pretty much how it went. It was pretty, pretty, you know, nonchalant and uh, nothing real tense, no long, drawn-out negotiations just i'm a pretty easy guy he's a pretty simple guy straightforward deal we worked it out and uh i showed up let's see how it goes and of course by the time they had me come into the picture is right when they had just did the the turn on the nwa belt and, and you know switched it over to extreme championship stuff and uh that's where we come in. And, you know, with Paul, he always had a million things going on, <laughs> which is understandable in show night. But, you know, he always made the time to pull me aside and uh, talk like a special little conversation with us, you know. <laughs> and uh, he's like, yeah, he said, I got, I got a bunch of ideas. I got a, a bunch of plans. He said, I want to get with you. He said, but, you know, I'm kind of, kind of real busy tonight. He said, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to go out. And blah, 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 you know. I'm like, whatever, man. Just, hey, whatever. We'll get together. So, you know, we go out, do whatever we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. He had a couple of my guys he wanted me to bring down. So, you know, we had them go in, do a match with the Dudleys or whatever, and blah, blah, blah. Everything went okay. like kind of like we expected. Anybody new coming into one of their, you know, established characters that he's building. You know, these guys coming in, nobody knows who they are. And here, of course, with me, they knew me, <laughs> but this is the first time they're seeing me in this group. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever, if you're familiar with some of my work or not, but uh, mm -hmm. usually I'm the kind of guy that you make up your mind on pretty quick. <laughs> yep. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, I don't know how far back you go. Uh, did you follow any of the stuff that I had done early in my career or is this like ECW era or what are you familiar with? I knew of you from like AWF and uh, maybe okay. a little bit before that, like in the Indies, but ECW is kind of where I really knew like, Oh wow. Godfather yeah. Damien Keegan. That's really where I came to really know you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the NWF stuff had kind of quieted down and phased out by the time I did anything with ECW stuff It had, you know, I was doing other things. I went over to Europe and did some stuff. Uh, the same promoter, Rob Russell. He uh, he always loved loved my work, so I don't know. He uh, he kept me doing some things, and I did take some time off and decided to, uh, you know, do some other stuff. Went right back to wrestling, of course. Didn't stay gone for long. Uh, and anyway, just... Uh, what between the NWS stuff and the ECW stuff, there was a gap of time there where I wasn't on TV anywhere and I wasn't doing anything active in the business. As far as that goes, I started training guys and I had my own little place going and, you know, things were coming together. So <laughs> with that being said, uh, you know, 
a lot of people only realize the ECW stuff. Right. A lot of people don't know what the NWF even is, <laughs> you know, because a lot of those fans from back then are dead <laughs> or whatever. But uh, I'm just surprised to still be alive with myself. But anyway, you know, back in the day, that's kind of how it all went down in between places. I was quiet for a little while. And by the time I showed up on TV for ECW at the ECW arena, after doing some stuff of my own up in Reading, and I think that's where, actually, I think, to be honest with you, if you want a straight answer, shoot answer, or shoot type interview, I don't know what you want to call it, but I'll just give you the honest to God's truth. How's that? The honest to God's truth is that <clears throat> the reason why I think, I don't know this to be a fact, this is my theory, uh, looking back in hindsight, I believe that they were interested in bringing me into ECW to distract me from what I had going on in Reading. Um, for them, it was probably too close for comfort. It was just another distraction in the area that they were trying to conquer. You know, they had a vision they wanted to move forward with. And, you know, it's like even McMahon, every time he went into a territory and took it away from somebody or took it over or whatever, you know, he's your buddy up front, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it's like, yeah, come on in, man. I think it's going to be great and blah, blah, blah. We'll use a couple of your guys. Yeah, man, you'll be on everything, and we'll, we'll, we'll build around you. He came to me with so many ideas of things he was going to do. Not one of them. Not one of them did he stick with. Not one. <laughs> and, you know, he knew what what I could offer, especially with the package that I came in there with. You know, it was a... It was a totally complete package that you could take any different direction you wanted to go with, and the people involved would have been capable of getting the job done. And that was a fact. You and Lady Alexandra? Oh, that was the perfect team as far as mixed anything. You know, it was a perfect team because I was the one that they loved to hate just because of my aggressive everything and, and over-the-top, you know, uh, emotion that I put into everything I do with the passion. It's just, you know, easy to hate a guy like me, especially when she comes off as a damsel in distress and she's so gorgeous, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. she just made her a, a, a victim that they, everybody wanted to save that poor girl from this horrible beast. Yes. Yeah, the beauty and the beast concept. And that's it. I mean, it worked. And it's not the first time that we had worked together. I mean, you know, I started working with her when I started, uh, when I was back in the NWF stuff. It brought her in as a valet, as part of the package that I had going with Drake, you know, and uh, she just became part of part of my deal. I mean, from that point on, we eventually ended up getting married. And, uh, you know, that was, that was just it. We worked together. That was it. And, uh, you could have done anything with that package and you could stand it next to any other package in that group at the time. You could put, you know, Tommy Dreamer and Bulo. You could put anybody you want with Francine. You could put, you know, anybody you want, you know, Raven and Kimono. You could take any of them that was there at that time. And I'm, I'm, for me to say it means I'm being biased, but I've heard it from so many fans that all the girls were good, we were beautiful, we were nice for one reason or another, but she always stood out. 
He's always the one that stood out in any situation with looks, personality, uh, on and, you know, in the business or not, you know, people who got to know her, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those people that when they walk into a room, you notice it doesn't matter who else is in that room. Everything, body just notices it, you know, that's her, you know, and I'd like to think that together with that one factor that I offer along with the factor that she offered together, I think was an unstoppable pair that he wouldn't do anything with it. You know, he, he toyed with it. Did he want you to be you know, a wrestler and a manager? Cause it seemed like you did both. Yes. I did. And that was part of my, uh, my doing too, because, you know, I was a wrestler first when I, when I trained, I trained with Kowalski to wrestle, not to manage. I trained as a, as a wrestler and I worked as a wrestler for a few years on, in the, you know, doing the IWF stuff and other independent stuff and all kinds of stuff. I was, you know, I was a wrestler. I only started managing after we decided, meaning me and Drake, to uh, form a partnership so that he could change his image and gimmick, so to speak, as this Mr. Nice Guy, you know, powerlifter guy, you know, nice guy, nice guy, nice guy, you know, great for baby face, but it wasn't working for him, you know, to be honest with you. And I told him, I said, man, you you got to go heal, bro. (laughs) You want to have fun in this game. You got to go heal. And he's like, yeah, you know, everybody, I I just don't have that look for it. I said, brother, listen, (laughs) come, come, come talk to me. Let's work something out here. We, let's talk about what we're trying to accomplish here because we were both on the same page. At the time, we were we were working out of uh, Easton VFW up in Easton, PA. Uh, we had a TV production going out of there. It was being shown on uh, Twin County Cable. Uh, uh, yeah, with Burke's Cable. Uh, there were several different cable companies that was getting some airtime on local programming and believe it or not people were finding it i was kind of amazed at that i I thought it was all fun and games but people were actually finding it and starting to respond to it and starting to become serious fans and some of them are to this day still that way up in allentown i just did a meet and greet up there with don and abby a couple weeks back and uh you know (laughs) I don't know if you know some of the names. There's some of the fans in the area for years. But, uh, one of them was up there. Uh, as soon as he walked in the door, oh, my God. I can't believe you're actually here. You know, big hugs. And she considers herself my sister and has since I was Bonzo back in the early 80s. <laughs> when I started in 1980, she was there. Nancy Moore. And uh, there's other couple other ones, too, that, some of them have passed on, but it seems like once they become a fan, they stick for life, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I mean, you have to be doing something worthwhile for them to stick, keep interested, you know what I mean? And, uh, and that's, been, that's been the way it's been for me my whole career. You know, people that don't know me hate my guts. They legitimately hate me. I mean, I, <laughs> I have that way of presenting what I do in a way that makes you think twice about whether or not that's real or not. 
Right. And as much as everybody says K-Fave is dead, I got to tell you, I did a, a show with Monty and the Pharaoh show, and they touched on on that very subject. And I said, you know, <laughs> I've been quiet for 25 freaking years. I said, you know, everybody's telling me this K-Fave is dead. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't get the freaking memo on that. So I don't know what else everybody else is telling it or what everybody else might be saying. I can only speak from the heart and tell you the way I feel. And some of the things you're coming out with and some of the things they were bringing up was about Heyman. And they were trying to, like, rub salt in the wound, so to speak, when they knew it was a sore subject to talk about. They kept bringing up things. And I kept getting, you know, I'm doing my thing. And they just didn't know how to take that. I guess, you know, most guys will calmly sit there and talk like I'm talking to you. But if you want me to do my job, and that's what I'm being paid to do, then <laughs> I'm going to do my job. And, you know, they got a lot of feedback off of that, saying that, you know, that was, you know, people were like, oh, my, I, you know, I've seen a bunch of shoot interviews and stuff, man. I, that's the best thing i ever seen. You know, all kinds of crap like that was coming out. So they thought it was pretty good, even though it didn't fit the format they were looking for. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I just kind of catch everybody off guard once I start doing my thing and they just don't know how to take it. So they let it run. And then when they realize that, man, that passion is for real, <laughs> he is genuinely emotionally attached to this topic. Yeah. 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 You're fucking a right. I am. Excuse my language, but I'm sorry. That's the way I am. I'm, my dad was full blooded Italian and that Italian blood in me, I just can't tame it down. It's I'm very passionate about everything I do. And when I do that, I've made a lot of people scratch their head wondering, you know, and second-guessing themselves. And a lot of people genuinely just learn to hate me because they believe everything that I do. I'm a pretty nasty guy, <laughs> you know, in the ring. And right. they give me a microphone in front of my face. Back in the day when there wasn't all this crap going on that's going on where you can't say this, you can't say that, can't say this, can't. I did some pretty, pretty good Stuff that you would never, never be able to be said today. But it was a different time. You know, it was a different time. It's like stuff that we did with that Arena Nightlife show. It was kind of over the top, off the wall, you know, satirical comedy type stuff, you know. But played straight. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's kind of like one of those things, you know. Entertaining, but... Did they just do that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. We had fun. We had fun. What did you think about? So, yeah, I mean, I kind of got off track there about what we were talking about with Heyman, but was was there something else more you wanted to know about that deal? Yeah, just like how did you think? Pretty much cover it. How did you think you fit into ECW? You know, you got the gangsters who you and Devin Storm wrestled. You mentioned the Dudley Boys, the Bad Crew. Like, yeah. how did you think you fit into, you know, Paul Heyman's vision of this extreme ECW? I honestly thought that's what he was bringing me in to do, to bring me in for, because I was so, you know, I was always a hardcore player. I was always, everything I did always had an edge to it, even with the blonde hair when I had the monkey and stuff, you know. There was, there was always stuff that I did, even back in that day with, you know, those legendary guys that I had the the good fortune of learning from and working with, you know, they would, they were very generous with uh, with the work that we did in the ring. And keep in mind, I'm a new guy, you know, I'm still green, you know what I mean? Uh, but 
didn't feel that way because I had studied the game so close. Every three weeks I was there, man. Allentown on Tuesday. Next lesson was Hamburg on Wednesday, you know, and see all the greats. See, you know, Jim Myers in there doing his thing, you know. He was sitting there in the chair just a minute ago smoking a cigarette with a towel over his shoulders, laughing at what the other guy was just saying, and then here he comes. It's his turn, and all of a sudden he's got his tongue hanging out, and somebody's talking for him, and he's going, ooh, 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 you know. It's just, I get it, you know, and I got it fairly young. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. And when I was old enough to do it, I had been a familiar face by that time because I was there all the time. I actually had a big brother through the Big Brothers of America uh, Society uh, because my mom was a single mom. And uh, she had gotten me this big brother mentor and he actually used to he used to help out uh, with security. He was a a former uh, police officer, and way back in the day, he actually wrestled. Didn't do much with it, but he had a couple eight by tens. He showed me that he actually wrestled back in the day, and uh, I was like, "Wow, cool!" So he actually did uh, some of the security work up there at the field house, especially. And for sure, on Wednesdays, he'd take me up there early in the day when they were still setting up. I'd help him out setting up chairs and stuff. And because I'm walking in with him and I'm with him, everybody just accepts me, you know. And that opens up a whole new world to you, you know, uh, as far as the difference between sitting home watching it on TV and being there watching them make it for TV. You know, it's a different story. Uh, and when I was old enough, I approached the promoter at the time, Phil Zacco. He was a little short, bullheaded guy. Typical boxing, wrestling promoter guys from the 50s, 60s, stuff like that, you know. A uh, little short guy with a cigar, <laughs> you know, sleeves rolled up, suspenders, you know, talking in a grovel voice about everything that needed to be done. Come on, let's get this shit going. All right, get them chairs put up. You know, whatever. Anyway, I approached him and I said, you know, I was kind of curious uh, what I'd have to do to actually uh, wrestle for you guys. And he's like, well, have you ever wrestled before? I was like, high school a little bit, maybe. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, professional. I said, no, no, no. That's what I'm asking you about. <laughs> he's like, oh, okay, yeah, well, I see you up here all the time. He said, you're a local guy. I said, yeah, 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 I live right down the road. That'd be great. He said, yeah, let me come in the box office here. Let me get you a name and a number. So I want you to give this guy a call. Tell him that we talked. And, uh, you know, see what he thinks. And uh, if he takes you under his wing and we get you trained up, we can use you on our TV. We're always looking for local guys. And uh, when we do our shows in Philly and, you know, surrounding areas, uh, you know, we bring local guys in as much as we can for the undercard stuff. And then we bring, you know, the names that we need for the for the main events and stuff. So, yeah, he said, go ahead and get your training and uh, tell him I told you to call and see what he says. Okay. So he pulls out his little black book writes down on the back of one of their cash receipts for the payouts. It says, uh, Walter Kowalski. Uh, I knew exactly who that was, you know. So the rest is history. I made that call and made the sacrifice of going up to New England when he had a place up at Salem, Massachusetts, and YMCA. Went up there, and the cost of living up there was a lot more than it was down in PA, where I was from. So uh, I couldn't afford a place to stay right away, so I ended up actually living out of a van. I had a Dodge Tradesman 200 uh, modified van back in the day. That was very common. 
and it had like a, a plywood across two benches that went across, uh, along the back walls of the van with speakers and stuff in them and storage and all that. And you could convert that into a bed real easy with having a mattress back there. It was a full-size bed. And that's where I ended up staying with uh, milk and milk uh, crates uh, as storage containers underneath that because it was just the perfect height. So there'd be about six or eight milk uh, uh, milk uh, crates filled with different clothes and non-perishable food items, you know, peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> I'll get a loaf of bread and make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that day for lunch in between working out and working in the gym. So that's all I was there to do, you know. And, you know, within no time, he, he thought I caught on pretty quick. He said, you ever do this before? I said, no, sir. He's like, okay, well, you learn quick. I said, okay, well, I'm trying, you know. I know I'm not the biggest guy in the world. He said, that, that's not what matters. He said, and he started using examples of little guys that he ran across in his career. He said, you know, <laughs> and they made big money. They, you know, they were main, main eventers. And I was like, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I'm certainly here for the right reason. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it my best shot for sure. He said, well, you're doing real good. You're doing real good. Well, they were starting to get guys together that were ready to work. And there were some of them were already working. They were already taking a, you know, van load of guys down to the tapings from up there, from Walter's guys that did the TV for the WWF guys, you know. So I was in that mix of guys, and uh, they were looking for guys that could talk. So they were doing some mock uh, promos and stuff with a VHS. And a guy come in with a microphone. You stand there and you do a mock promo. And they count you down like they would for TV. And they wrap you up and, you know, give you a subject and a town and an opponent and see what you do with it. And that's about it. You know, the rest is all your creativity, whatever you come out with. And I saw a couple of guys go up and give it a shot. And they were, you know. They were doing the best they could do. I'm not going to critique anybody. They they were doing the best they could do, and that's all that mattered. And uh, they called me to come up, and I went ahead and went up. Now, my wife was with me at the time. Uh, not Lady Alexandra, by the way. It was my first wife. <laughs> uh, she was actually with me at the time, and we had a couple of pet capuchin monkeys that we had as personal uh, pets that we adopted from the Simeon Society. And weren't trained to do anything they were just our babies you know and she was back in the back corner of the gym on the other side of the ring and stuff uh staying out of the way just keeping her quiet and just playing with the little monkey on her arm little capuchin monkey so i go back there and i'm hanging out with her until they called me to come up so i went ahead up i stayed up front there did my thing and uh when they put me out there in front of the camera they told me the same stuff you know this is that, and that's this, and okay, got two minutes, we can count you down, okay, okay. I've seen it done a million times, so I was like, this is my turn, you know. So when they turned the camera on, and guys started talking, by the time he started getting to the point of anything, I kind of took over, and uh, I ran with what I, I thought, my vision of what I thought would work. First time doing it, so... I'm sure it, it was an eclectic mix of Lou Albano, Fred Blassie, Ernie Hall, <laughs> you, right. you know, all the greats. All the all guys the you remember, yeah. Yep. 
oh my god remember they were instilled in me they were they were you know i've seen it over and over and i was like yeah i get this i get this so when i had my shot it i turned it on too and uh nobody else had done that they had just gotten up there and tried to talk and make it interesting you know and maybe try to put a little something in it but nowhere near what what i gave them was what they told me go that was it and uh i wrapped it up on cue Walter loved it. And so did a couple of the other guys that were there critiquing his guys to see if they had any that could talk that they could do something with, you know. And, you know, that was probably, you know, the first step in getting somebody's attention for the first time ever. And uh, I went back. He said, that's what I'm talking about. That's what, that's what I want everybody else to do, blah, blah, blah. And I was, you know, I was, honored but i was ready you know so i went back in the back sat back down there with the wife and the, the monkey that was with us and just quiet in, in a shadowed area of the other side of the ring while they were doing more stuff well somebody noticed me, me holding the monkey back in the back and brought the, her attention and started making a fuss over it walter's like what the hell you got there <laughs> And in his grovel voice, he wanted to know, you know, if I, if I was trained to do anything. And I said, no, 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 no. Just our baby, you know. But it does have one peculiar habit. And it had a collar on it with a little lead chain, a couple of links and a, and a and a ring on it. And we'd stick our finger through that ring, and it was just a perfect size for her to just stay on her forearm right there. And she was happy. She had enough movement. She could bounce up and down and express herself. And she was happy like that. And uh, so... I walk over, and he's like, I said, but the habit that it has, it, you know, it doesn't do anything like on command, except one that has a peculiar habit. Every time I point at anything, this monkey will go off. <laughs> so as an example, he was sitting there, well-behaved, and I just pointed at him for a second. And as soon as I did, she took a double take and noticed me pointing, and <laughs> immediately went into a rage. That was funny as hell because she's only a little thing, you know. But uh, man, it got his attention, and he was like, "Oh, you got to use that. You got to use the bring the monkey up here. We got to do one with the monkey. I want to see what that you did. Just do, you know. Let, let, let's do another promo and use the monkey. I want to see how that comes across." Okay, <laughs> so I'm standing there. The guy opens up the interview, and we start start to talk. And as soon as he gives me any reason to point at anything. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, let me tell you something. And I pointed, man. That monkey did the same thing. <laughs> so I turned it up, and I, he's the monkey's going off uh, within control. You know, he's still hooked to the chain on my arm, and he's going off. <laughs> he's background noise for me, running my gums, talking about whatever I was saying at the time. And they're still trying to count me down, and people are laughing. And they count me down, and I wrap it up right on cue, and he laughs his ass off. He said, oh, my, you got to use that monkey. What, what the hell is that? We heard, wait, you need a name with the monkey. What the hell is the name of that movie? Uh, they had a monkey with uh, Ronald Reagan in it. What the hell is that movie? Somebody said, bedtime for Bonzo. That's all he had to hear was Bonzo. That's it. That's it. The monkey ran Bonzo. That's it. <laughs> I'm like, Walter, are you kidding me? That's a freaking clown name, man. I don't know. That's not what I had in mind. And he's like, kid, you want to make money? 
Yeah, I'm good. Give me. He said, that, that, that's, that's great right there. You, you, you got to use it. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> there I am. <laughs> the the multi-man. And, uh, yeah. Like I said, it was like an eclectic mix of a bunch of people I was influenced by by watching all the greats. And, you know, ended up with a whistle around my neck just because Captain Lou did it. <laughs> you know, I was brand new to the game and I went and did my first TV taping and they're sticking a microphone in my face on doing interviews and stuff. You know, they don't do that. They don't do that. That's the first time I could work in front of people at all in the studio. And I had like 100 people, 75 people, something like that, just studio taping, you know, like Florida Championship Wrestling stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's that's how it all started for me. And I got very fortunate because they booked me a lot on the, on the stuff that they had going to keep their guys working. I became one of those guys. And, you know, I worked a lot with David San Martino. I worked a lot with uh, the Soto brothers, uh, Manny more than Roberto, but Manny Soto. Uh, you know, it was a great lesson. You know, Luis Martinez, he was doing an Indian gimmick at the time. We had Madison Square Garden matches, in his words. He, he insisted every chance he had to get me on a card. He was like, yeah, let me work with Bonzo tonight. Let me, oh, we'll go out there and tear the house up. You know? And there might have only been 150, 200 people, but they were they were into what we were doing because uh, all I did was follow his lead for everything. And they were so generous with working with me to get the most out of what I had to offer. And, you know, I gave them something to work with, I guess. So they kept giving me more and more. And, I kept getting more, more and more freedoms, and I made enough contacts the first couple of years of getting to know promoters and different bookers and so forth and the different boys that I just, you know, I just didn't want to do blonde hair thing, you know. I just didn't didn't want to do the monkey gimmick thing. I, I just wanted something more me, you know. And uh, that's why I took a little bit of time off. Uh, at the time, I was running a pizza and sandwich shop that uh, opened up in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania. Paid a little attention to my business for a while and then got back to doing my thing. And that's where I started working in with Don when he was doing, uh, when we were up there in Easton. And again, uh, Larry Winters was involved in that too. So when I showed up there the first time in the back, Larry, we worked together in the ring many, many moons traveled together on the road many many moons you know he had no clue no clue and uh he when he got there you know went around and introduced himself to all the boys you know tradition and when he came over i tried to throw him off you know keep my head down a little bit and uh kind of mumbled to him a little bit with and, and some kind of accent just i don't know what accent i just threw it out there I was like, I was like oh good to meet you my friend you know and he, he said, oh, yeah, same here, same here. And he started to try to ask me some stuff, and I was trying to avoid the issue and keep getting ready, and then he took a double take. And he's like, Ponzo? Get the fuck out, you know? And he starts, he starts fucking going off, you know? He's like, Ponzo, oh, my God, where? Oh, man, I didn't know it was you. I had no idea, bro. Oh, man, that, you talk about it, nobody knowing, nobody's going to fucking know that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, nobody ever did until I started opening my own mouth and letting people know that that was me. And he said, oh, that was you? I wondered whatever happened to that guy. Blah, 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 blah. You know. So, yeah, man, I have a very uh, 
fortunate start in the business and a very, you know, fortunate uh, run with everything that I did in the business, you know. When we were doing that stuff at the CWA stuff, we ended up, uh, me and Sweet Daddy White were tag team champions for a while. That was one, like I said, I had wrestled that whole time. And then uh, when I talked to Drake about doing something more, I wanted to bring in the strength that we needed as a actual promoter to promote the product. And let's see what we can do to clean it up a little bit, refine it a little bit and get some better exposure and start actually doing something. And he's like, Oh, I'd love to. I just, uh, you know, I don't have the connection for that. I said, well, I'll tell you who we're going to talk to. A good friend of mine, Mr. Bob Raskin from Raskin sports productions. He, uh, he was, he got involved with the stuff that I was doing when I was doing the Bonzo stuff with the IWF. He knew me. Uh, you know, always liked my work. And uh, I gave him a call. Oh, you know, basically connected Bob Braskin with myself and Drake and culminated in changing the name to uh, National Independent Championship Wrestling, I think it was at the time. And, uh, you know, we had Bob now uh, as uh, a money man and promoter so that we could focus more. And he, he seen some of the stuff we did and he agreed with what we needed to do and, uh, you know, repackage it a little bit and, uh, refine it. We had all the elements in place. I mean, we were using Ted Petty's ring. I think we were using his ring from up there in uh, New York. Um, so he was involved with us as a cheetah kid at the time. And, uh, hmm. yeah, Jimmy Powers was there. Um, uh, think Ray Apollo, uh, Jack Victory or Jackie Valiant at the time he was going by uh, you know a bunch of guys a bunch of guys who were good guys and uh, you know we had a good thing going and it only got better from there and make a long story short like, <laughs> like it hasn't been long already but uh, make a long story short what we did is grew that from that to what became the National Wrestling Federation in that area uh, with Bob Raskin and the promoters that we got together from creative entertainment. So we had four people now that were backing us up. We had, you know, Mike Dano, uh, Rob Russin, uh, Bob Raskin and Nate Golan. And, you know, that was, that was, and, and, you know, we had what we needed to really start expanding the product and refining it and get better, you know, presentation of it. Uh, the content got better, the talent, uh, got better as we went along we started bringing in more and more uh you know let's face it when somebody sees you doing tv and they're seeing stuff in magazines they start knocking on your door pretty quick and we had uh no problem getting talent after a while uh and you know it was a good thing and then bob raskin kind of broke off and did his own thing uh and the other three stayed together and did the national wrestling federation stuff on the booking front and uh I mean, as far as booking the shows, and they relied on me and Drake to uh, organize a lot of that talent uh, to make sure that the TV productions got pulled off. You know, uh, we we were the mm, slash on slash bookers. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call us that though, because you know Rob was actually the guy talking to most of the boys that we were bringing in. Uh, we were just the guys, you know, directors, so to speak, in the in the back. 
uh, producers uh, helping the show uh, stay together, keep it on point, you know, make sure it finished up in the right, you know, the way we needed it to go. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a beautiful thing and it, it, it laid the groundwork for all the stuff that came about from that point on. Like I said, it was the birth of uh, Paul Heyman. Um, it was the, the perfect mix of the, of the main talent that we were drawn from both of the other groups that were fresh from those groups. You know, I mean, it was, a, it was really a good thing. And the reason why it fell apart is a combination of things, but the biggest reason is because they lost their TV. And the reason why they lost their TV is because of <laughs> a key person involved with uh, ECW stuff that came about. So it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a type of business and, you know, it's a business and everybody has to do what they have to do to survive it and, and, and win the game, you know? So I was at that point broken away from DC Drake and uh, had started doing other stuff. Like I said, I went over to Europe, did some stuff over there, worked with Luna. Teddy was over there too. He supplied the ring and stuff for that. Uh, Tom Zink, Derek Dukes. You know, we had a good roster over there. Did some other stuff. There was going to be other dates going over there. I ended up bowing out because I just didn't, ah, just wasn't into it. You know, didn't want to do it. So, you know, we, we started doing what I wanted to do and uh, build my own little empire, <clears throat> empire there in Reading. And then came the call and come to ECW and I, I was looking at my chops because they know this perfect for me. They know it. <laughs> Paul knows it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? He knew it for sure. So I was looking forward to it. And, you know, of course, you know, Paul's presentation to you is always over the top at first. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I got home, oh, man. I got this. I got that. I got this. I got that. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait till we just hang in there. Hang in there. Uh, yeah, okay. Sure. Whatever you want. Just let me know what you need, bro. <laughs> you know? And that's how it went. And, you know, he'd have us go out there, do one little thing and say, we're going to work the program with those guys and then change up on, you know, they put me with, uh, Devin Storm, Crowbar. Yep. Put me, put me with him for a while. Said we were going to do this program with, well, that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, always, always, there's a big story. Well, you know, head, head, headhunters, you know, going to have you doing the headhunters. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to be working a program with them and the Dudleys, and, and it, yeah, 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 it's going to be great. Okay. None of it pans out. None of it. None of it ever. You know. So he's doing spot things on shows with me, like we're going to do the first nationwide broadcast. <laughs> you know, I want you to go out there and interrupt the opening. Joey's going to be opening up the program. I want you to go out there and interrupt him and just take over. <laughs> okay. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, yeah, yeah, you're the Godfather Extreme and all this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, no problem. So that's what I did. I did what he what he asked me to do. It worked. You know, people were into it because I can piss people off just by sticking my face out there. You know, and yeah, he was there. Everything worked. You know, no Porter or Canyon. Boom, boom, boom. Dump him over the top. He stays down. Bring his opponent out here. I'm going to kick his ass. Bring Mikey out here. And that was the big deal. 
Mikey comes out as the ultimate underdog. I take him for granted, bing, bang, boom, bing, bang, boom, throw him around a couple of times, go for a finish, and he catches me off guard, quick finish, boom, 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 and now we got a fuse. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then we were going to work the program. Sounded good. Yep, I'll take it. We'll do it. Never happened. <laughs> you know, it's just like every time. And he'd have me hang around till 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. We'd do promos. And he'd take like a a promo and uh, cut a piece of it and show a couple of pieces of it. Never let never let anything uh, get any, you know, sink in and get any traction. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. Kept me on the kept me on the fringe, which is a frustrating place to be when you're chomping at the bit and there's so much going on that you know you'd be perfect to fit in on. And he keeps coming up with the ideas to keep you interested, but n- nothing of substance ever comes about. And it's like you know, it gets old when everybody everybody there that's not directly his guys is telling you how great you are. It's telling you that, you know, that was awesome. I mean, it's just frustrating. I've heard that my whole career and I've been told so many times that I should have been with the WWE long time ago or NWA when it was NWA or WCW, any of them, you know, and I just never wanted to do that. I just was happy you know, navigating my own career. And uh, I would have been very happy being like a Brody or somebody that never had to sign a contract long-term with anybody, but made just as much of an impact on the business. And he did it his way. That's the kind of mentality I had, you know, and I was happy with that. I didn't need that big push and be a household name to feel successful at what I was doing. I was successful at everything I did. You know, when you stop and think about it, if you really knew the details, I, I was pretty well off from the first day I stepped into the business because I earned it. You know, people ask you, what's your secret? What, you know, it's like I said in, in one of my crazy promos. It's like, it's like asking Elvis how you get to be the king of rock and roll, man. You just figure it out. You figure it out. But there's one thing you got to have. And you can't teach that thing. The people that that really do something special, they have that something that nobody else has, you know, that it factor. And you can't teach it. You either have it or you don't. And if you do have it, it's going to come pretty natural to you, like it did for me. And if you don't, there's people that try forever, and it still looks like they just don't get it, you know? Now you tell me, am I I making that up? That's, That's the way it works, man. Love it for you. No, absolutely not. But I uh, love it that, you know, you kind of did it your way. You didn't have to go almost like a bruiser Brody type. You didn't have to do it your way. But do you have any regrets in the wrestling business? Like looking back, anything you wish you would have done differently? Yeah. Yeah, there is. There's, 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 I mean, you know, I'd like to be able to say with confidence, nah, I got no regrets, no regrets, but I, but I do have one and, and it's not, I guess it's it's nobody's fault except my own. But when I decided to step away, uh, there were some personal reasons why we had done that at that time. But that got 
totally misconstrued with the conversation that took place between me and Mr. Heyman. Uh, you know, we were working, I think it was September. It was September of 96. And, you know, by that time I had been working with him for, I don't know, a year or more. And we were, he was wanting to do a certain something and it just so happens. And, and now listen, listen carefully to what I'm saying here, because a lot of people that ask me these questions about that particular night and that particular reason why we were fired or whatever. And none of that is true. And that, that always, every time somebody tells me a story they've heard, it always relates somehow to Missy Hyatt. And I got to tell you, the only, only thing it had to do with Missy Hyatt was that her name was brought up as a reference to something that happened to her the week before. And she had broken her arm. And when, you know, I mean, Missy was, was one of the girls that actually uh, hung out with us quite a bit there uh, in the locker room because Beulah kind of stuck over with Francine and Kimona and kind of latched onto them. And, you know, everybody kind of clicked off in their own way. Now, everybody was always cordial, don't get me wrong. But Missy always seemed to be, you know, hanging out with uh, Lady Alexandra. And I'm like, that's cool, you know, I'm glad she's, you know, feeling comfortable about, you know, hanging out. And, you know, that kind of made things with Paul a little more relaxed. You know what I mean? So he wanted to do a similar, almost identical angle using uh, Lady Alexandra or Jenny is her, is her name. He wanted to use her in that angle, the same angle that Missy broke her arm doing. Now, that was coming from Missy. We didn't even, we weren't there for it. But she said when she got there that night, we seen her arm was broken. She was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you about that in a minute, you know. Then when we were back in the back there and kind of private, she was letting her know, hey, if they want you to do this thing, just be real careful because that's how I ended up with this. And I'm like, hmm, really? Okay. So Paul, you know, calls us back there, kind of runs down what he has in mind. I get it, you know. And I waited until the other people involved kind of walked away. And you know, I told Jenny, just go and sit down. I'll be there in a minute. And me and Paul had a one-on-one private conversation. And in that conversation, there was no reference to anything that had to do between me and Missy Hyatt. The Missy Hyatt comment came about when I looked Paul in the eye. And by that time, we were already, you know, I already was pretty frustrated with what he had done with me for the last year and a half or so that I was kind of, I was kind of done with it, you know. I was like, had the shits of it. And uh, I said to him, I said, you know, Paul, let me just say this one thing to you. We're going to go out and do this tonight. It's probably the last thing I'm going to do for you, but I'm going to tell you this before that. And I said, you know, if the same thing happens to her, it happened to Missy last week. Me and you are going to have a problem. You understand what I'm saying? 
And he took that, and he blew that way out of proportion and stepped back and started putting on a show for everybody in the locker room where my conversation was one-on-one, quietly and privately in a corner with him. He turned it into a show, and he, he started talking shit and putting all the heat on me for, for, for whatever. I don't know what, what the hell even came out of his mouth at the time, but part of it was, you just think you're better than everybody here. You don't respect these guys. I'm trying to turn them all against me. And I was, I, you know, Paul's going to overpower you. He's going to keep talking over you no matter what you do, no matter what you say. He's like a little weasel. won't shut up, you know. But I spoke up, too, and I said, you know, that's fucking bullshit. Excuse my language. But I can tell you this. I said, every one of these guys in here I respect more than you can imagine because every single one of them are putting their life on the line for your freaking vision every goddamn night. I said, and I do the same thing. I said, you know that's bullshit, but you can say whatever you want, spin it however you want, but we're going to do our job like a professional. And at the end of the night, we'll see how it turns out. And we went out, and we did exactly what was asked, and everything went fine. And we came back and finished out the rest of the night and got our stuff. And I think they had, they might have had one last show booked with me up there at the Body Slams Arena. It was either right afterwards or right before that that they had a show booked in my place. I don't remember which it was. Either way, it was already a done deal that this wasn't going to work. So I had a little conversation with him in my gym after everybody was getting ready to leave and everything. And he always has Tommy hang around and wait for him. You know, he wants to make sure he has his backup. So I told him, I said, you know, Paul, I've been thinking about taking some time off anyway. You know, think about starting that family I always wanted. So just between you and me, this is probably going to be my last hurrah for you. So, you know, just wanted to have a little friendly conversation with you, remind you of old times, you know. Because 10 years prior to that, <laughs> 10 years prior to that, I did everything that you could do to open doors for him, to get him started doing right. programs, to do get him started doing a commentary get him started doing manager and even put him out there with me and Drake as a manager with the, with the fantastics for his first shot, gave it to him on TV. So he had something to work with. So when you do all that for somebody who autographs his book to you and gives you such high praises and calls you every night and talks about all these ideas and all these, for that to turn into this, I just never was able to figure that out. I never could figure out what the hell the real problem ever was. I can't imagine that it's just insecurity. I mean, he should be secure enough with his own skill, his own knowledge of the game, that he don't have to worry about anybody else. He knows that. He knows that, and I know that. That's why I don't sweat nobody. You ask me to do a job, you ask me to do something for you, I'm going to do it. You know, you tell me to cut a promo, I'll turn the camera on, I'll start talking. You know what? It doesn't matter what the topic is. It matters how you deliver it. And I've done so many things. It's it just, I can give it to you however you want it, or I can just sit here and have a conversation with you and let you know what's in my head. And that's what I've been doing lately. And it's scaring some people because they don't think I'm right. 
They think I'm lo- losing my freaking mind, man. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> no, I think I think you're right. But I think that is a great stopping point. But I think we do need to have you back on uh, sometime soon. We talk well, yeah, even I more stories. Yeah. The way this might have went. Yeah. No, no, I love it. I love it because well, you're such a great talker and you're such a good storyteller. But I feel like this should be part one, and we'll definitely uh, have another part two because there's so many more cool stories uh, to get to. But oh, I, there's a lot of yeah. stuff in between all that stuff. I just got sidetracked and got on a track. Oh there. yeah, I just wanted to get you to get you back to home base, and <laughs> I left out a lot. Oh yeah, but bef- before we let you go, is there any anything you're up to today, or any any plugs you want to give, or any any info you want to give no, to? No, you know. Here, here, here's exactly just just for your own information. If you want to share this with anybody, it doesn't matter. Oh yeah. Uh, if, I was, if I was going to tell you a secret, I'd tell you that, but I'm not. I'm going to tell you that my strategy is a simple one. I'm a realist. I know that I've had two different careers already, and I decided to take the time off to start a family. We moved to Florida. We did. We started a family. I had my son. I was thrilled to death with. Uh, he's now raised. And has my grandson, who's going to be three years old, and it's been the, you know, it's it's been the center of my life, uh, the family time that I didn't have when I was active all the time in the business. I got used to it, you know, got used to actually uh, doing my thing in a different way. Uh, experimented doing some other, you know, things behind the scenes, some things in front of the cameras that people would never recognize, so I never mentioned, but. You know, it's it, it's one of those things where I'm a realist. I know I'm not a new kid on the block coming in. I know I know what I have in my toolbox. I know what I bring to the table, and and I'm here to do what I can to kind of put a little twist on what's going on today and remind people what it's like to see the wrestling that they or fans of that got them so into the business in the first place. And it's not just ECW stuff. ECW is a culmination of stuff that we laid the groundwork for long before that. As a matter of fact, the first promo I did for ECW was <laughs> where the catchphrase came from, where, you know, uh, you know, everybody's saying, who's Damian Kane? who's Damian Kane? Well, I'll tell you who Damian Kane is. Damian Kane was hardcore before hardcore was cool, and they cut it off right there. So, and they montage that in, in, in with the rest of their promos. You know how he did the thing with the with the uh, Pulp Fiction theme, and he zoom in with with Raven, and yep. he cut to Tommy, and then he cut the. Well, he did the same thing with me, and mine was in there saying, you know, who's Damian Kane? Who's Damian Kane? I'll tell you, Damian Kane. He's Damian Kane was hardcore before hardcore was cool, and then cut <laughs> because I started talking about all the NWF stuff with Trey because it was the first day I was there. I didn't have anything to go by. He didn't even tell me what he was going for. He just said, go ahead and give me a promo. Show these guys how it's done. Because he was bragging about me, you know. He was when, when he saw me the first time walking in that locker room, he was like, you know who this guy is? You know, oh, my God, he helped me start this. He was putting on a fucking show for everybody there, making them think that this is great, this is great. And then behind the scenes, he just keeps you dangling. Keeps you dangling. For what reason? What? What 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 is it that you're just wasting my time and your time for? Because of the little bit of things that I did here and there, as you went through it, if you find those gems, it's all good stuff. The problem is it's been watered down by so much other stuff that has so much more appeal for the over the top fan that has seen the stack of tables off of off of uh, 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 
Yeah, the scaffolding and, you know, everything, all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? The over-the-top stuff that got him into some deep shit and got him in trouble in the first place. Setting stuff on fire, burning the freaking arena almost down, you know? I mean, <laughs> I wanted to remind, I want to be able to go back in there and knock on wood, I'm still in good enough shape to do this because I started training my son and I know what I'm capable of in the ring yet. So I'm still in good enough shape to do this. And after the last year and a half to two years of sitting around with all the rest of the craziness going on in the world, it gets you to really thinking what the hell's left, you know, what is the world coming to? And what better time than now, if I'm ever going to do anything else again, what better time than now? To start fresh with new branding, uh, you know, some of the new stuff I'm coming out with is, you know, everybody says, you, oh, man, it's like just turning the page. You look exactly the same. Well, yes and no. <laughs> there is 25 years difference between the two. <laughs> so right. because of that fact, everything I do is going to be strategic. I'm not just going to announce that, hey, I'm available for bookings and start working every little Tom, Dick, and Harry promotion that's up and down each road. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to pick and choose my mark, and I'm going to take strategic bookings that are going to put me in places that can have an impact and start to move in the direction I want it to go. You know what I mean? If that makes sense to you, I don't know if I didn't go into detail about exactly what I'm talking about, but I think you get the idea. It's not the the state of the business today. You know, it's great, and, and everybody is getting all excited now because everything's opened back up and everybody's drawing big numbers and everything's going good and all these great names are coming back to the surface and everything's happening. and It's all great. It's all great. I want to make sure that in that surge that there's somebody like me and a couple of the guys are also that I've noticed are jumping on that bandwagon and they're going to kind of reemerge. And, and most of the guys that I know of are my kind of guy, my, my style work where you actually got to scratch your head and think about it, you know, and that's been my strength for the whole time I've been in the business and why change it now? So everything I do has to be carefully thought out. And the one thing I wanted to do, I did a couple of weeks back and I ran a, you know, I went on tour with uh, Eric Sims with uh, ESS promotions. I did the uh, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday deal with, uh, I don't know, we did like five or six different things in three days. He hustled us around pretty good and got to meet and greet and, you know, talk to some key people and do a TV show that got some a little bit of exposure and got some people talking, and that's all I wanted from it. I wanted to just let people know that, hey, in, in, in pushing this, these appearances that I'm making right now, you're getting to see some stuff that I'm doing right now to compare to what you might remember from before and let you decide if it's something worth watching. And every time I put anything out there, the only complaint that I get, that I get from anybody is, oh, wow, that was long. <laughs> that was long. Because when, when Eric told me, he said, hey, man, do me a favor. Can you cut a promo for our stuff coming up? He said, I just want to get some stuff, you know, really push some stuff. I said, yeah, yeah no problem. <laughs> well, that was late on a Saturday night. I wasn't going to do it anymore that night. So I went ahead and lay down, went to sleep, woke up early Sunday morning, rolled out of bed, and went down to the den like I always do and worked out a little bit. Before I do anything, I mean, I don't do nothing. I roll out of bed, take a piss, <laughs> hit the weights, and then I worry about starting my day. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I go down there and I start working out. And I'm, I'm like, man, you wanted me to do a promo, I better go ahead and knock it out real quick. Ah, let me just, all right, let me just turn the camera on and say a little something. Whatever. 
So I turn the camera on. I'm sitting there in my white pants. I turn the camera on. I'm sitting there so I can see what I'm talking. And uh, 20, 20 minutes later, <laughs> I'm finding my, myself, you know, kind of summarizing the last 20 minutes of the things that I was saying. And I was like, that's going to be too long. <laughs> so I started, so I started cutting it down into bite-sized chunks of two and a half to three minute uh, intervals. And, uh, you know, it just, if you'd ever get to see the whole thing, the funniest part to me about it, and I didn't realize it while I was doing it, of course, but when I saw it play back, I'm like, well, let me see where I can find a good edit spot, you know, and cut these down a little bit. Well, when I look at it, I let it play the whole way through. And I was like, I don't think I blinked more than like three or four times <laughs> during that 20 minutes. I'm like, damn. <laughs> I wonder if anybody else is going to catch on to that. Because it was just a one-shot deal, one straight through shot. And uh, I was finally able to actually get it loaded to be able to play anywhere online. And I saw the whole thing play out. And it's like the comments that I got from that, People actually watched the whole damn thing, and they were getting back to me wondering if I was okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? I said, hey, brother, are you doing all right? You all right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. I just saw one of the things. The promo you did kind of, kind of crazy, man. <laughs> You're in character. Like, You're loving it. I'm like, really? Okay, well, yeah, I didn't realize it was that bad. No, no, no. Shit. Better than anything else on TV today, you know. I get, I get that shit all the time. But, you know, Rob Russell, he, he used to make comments about me online on Facebook. Every time he'd see anything come up about me, anytime, he would totally unsolicited. I would catch comments from him about whatever it was. And they would be shown, uh, you know, he'd be like, let me let me tell you about David Kane. And he'd, he'd run down a whole freaking almost a page of compliments of comparing me to some of the greatest people and talking about the only, the only thing different about Damian Kane than anybody else that you consider a household name is he didn't step into that spotlight. He didn't get that national and international exposure, but the talent is there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Every, I've heard it from, I've heard it from so many people. As a matter of fact, I think I was I was on a list. Somebody told me that I hadn't paid attention to wrestling for a long time, but somebody told me on the on the WWE Network or something there was some facts and stuff that they were uh, showing, and uh, Damian Kane was like the second person ever to not go <laughs> to the WWF or any of the major promotions. Uh, I was like ranked like second out of whoever they had on that list. I don't even know, but that's what people told me. I said, yeah, man, I was doing some research on you. You, you know, you're like the, the second, well, you know, uh, uh, the second as far as like, you know, being successful at what you've done or whatever, that never signed on a contract with either of the big groups. And I said, your team's like second on that list. I said, whatever, man, <laughs> whatever. I mean, that, that and 50 cents ain't even going to get me a cup of coffee anymore, you know, so. <laughs> to me, it's ne it was never about being a household name. It was never about being the most famous guy in the world. It was about just being the best that I could be at something that I learned from somebody I really respected as a legend in this business. You know, Kowalski was, uh, he, he was my mentor. And, uh, you know, he was an old school guy and different world than what we have today. He, uh, 
you know, the stories that he would tell, I'd be glued to the, you know, listening to every word, hinged on every word, man, because it was such valuable information. And he was such a, a, a stickler for details with anything he did in the ring. If it wasn't exactly executed the way it should be done, he'd stop you in your tracks and correct anything you were doing. I mean, he just didn't let shit slide by, you know. And I guess you could look at guys like Perry Saturn and guys like, uh, you know, Paul, Levesque, whatever. But, you know, there's a bunch of people you can look at. And Big John Stud, there's, you know, a bunch of people that uh, he turned out. China, you know, I think even Sasha Banks went through uh, up there, up in New England. Anyway, I mean, there's... Uh, such an influence that he had in the business along with guys that I respected that worked right along with him when I started like Dominic Bruno and guys like that. I mean, they were the, that's the integrity of the game. That's, that's the, the, uh, you know, it's like I said, a different world. It's not respected the same anymore. It's not looked at. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know. And yes, evolution is going to happen. Yes. Changes are going to happen. Yes. New people are going to come up. They have for generations. What's so different now? What's so different now is that it's entertainment. It's not a wrestling anymore. You know, when McMahon had it, uh, you know, deregulated, so to speak, uh, and considered an entertainment product, you know, that was all to save money on his end, I'm sure. But look at the eventual outcome of what that did to the business. You know, it revolutionized the game in one respect, but when your market is children, you're just breeding your next generation of fans. That's who you have in your universe today. You know, it's not rocket science we're talking about here. You know, he attracted that kid to everything he could, whether it was a cartoon or an ice cream bar or anything. He attracted the kid, which brought the parents to pay the price. So they were forced to come along for the ride and just made it okay. But those kids are now grown and they have been, you know, bred on WWE, you know? So it's a different world. And I just, I just hope I can do my part to, uh, to let the fans out there that, that, that would like to see some, and I don't even want to say this either because this isn't really true. Not that, not that I think they want to see and go back to what we did before, but by the same token, yeah. Kind of. You know what I mean? I could do exactly what anybody out there is doing today and still not kill each other doing it. You see what I'm saying? Yep. They knew how they knew how to do their job. And their job was not to convince the fan that what they did was real. It was their job to help them forget that it's not. And that's what they did. As masters, master technicians, they did that. You know? And why not be able to do that today with whatever style you got going on? Believe me, I can be as crazy as this guy. Nobody ever accused me of being normal. I can do the same crazy shit everybody does. And Paul knew that. That's why I was so frustrated. When I could be doing what you're trying to do, but I can I can I can help these kids that are killing themselves doing it. You don't have to necessarily do that. You know, when Mikey goes out to work with me, he's not sure what he's gonna get. But he realizes afterwards that that was a dream come true. You know, he's like, oh, wow, that was awesome, man. 
That was great. <laughs> you know, that's what you do. That's my job. If you're good at your job, people ain't going to know. It's the guys that try too hard. That's the ones that are obvious. Just do it. Just do it, but do it with control. Do it with some sense of you can have organized chaos. You can have chaos, but it can be an organized chaos. You can create a riot situation and pull it off as a riot situation and still not have anybody in jeopardy of getting hurt. I've done it. <laughs> I've done it at Fort Dix freaking uh, military base when the whole crowd was all military uh, uh, guys in uniform and the security was the MP uh, guys that were looking out for us. Yeah. Okay. Now, my my guy that I'm managing is Sheikh El Shad out there against Sergeant Slaughter and Terry Daniels. Come on. You don't think that was borderline trouble from the get-go? Waving a freaking green flag? <laughs> USA. <laughs> There's your USA. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's cheap heat, you know? So it was obvious that they weren't going to like us as soon as we walked down the aisle. And that aisle was not it was an outdoor show, and the aisle was closing in on us. <laughs> so everybody out there wanted to be her hero. With with Lady Alexandra, she was, you know, doing her, her thing with us at the time. I think she was Destiny at the time. Anyway, the uh, the guys all wanted to save her, save this damsel in distress. And to get through the crowd, the MP wasn't, they weren't helping us. <laughs> they were holding their boys back. <laughs> they were kind of closing in. There was nowhere to go down that aisle. I was waving that flag, man, trying to get them to back off enough so that we could squeak in. And we squeaked in, and my my nephew, it was like I said, he was like my little brother. He had the car ready. <laughs> we jumped in that car, and uh, off we went. You can look in the back, in the, in the rear view, and, and see all standing there. It was, it was, yeah, I'm funny, but but yeah, that was borderline right right there, and it was because of the circumstances. You know, those boys were passionate about USA, and I'm sitting there telling them, "Ah, screw you guys." You know, my chic is the guy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was, it was wild times. But anyway, so whatever you want to do, my friend. Uh, yeah, we're gonna have to get you back know. on to tell some more stories for sure. But this has been a great, <laughs> great uh, storytelling session, running down memory lane. I love it. We'll get into some more ECW stuff as well. But thank you so much for all time tonight. Really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Anytime. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.